Welcome back to The Arab-Israeli Conflict, Explained. In the last episode, we discussed the UN Partition Plan and the War of 1948, which left 700,000 Palestinian refugees in its wake. But I want to take it back for a moment. Shortly before the war ended, the United Nations declared, in Resolution 194, that, quote, refugees wishing to return to their homes and live at peace with their neighbors should be permitted to do so and that, quote, compensation should be paid for the property of those choosing not to return. Now, many of these refugees, these 700,000 refugees, expected to return to their homes, to their villages, and to Palestine, and they refused to be settled elsewhere. The neighboring Arab countries, for their part, simply lacked the resources to take in this new refugee population, many of whom were impoverished and unskilled. So, the Arab states advocated for Resolution 194 and argued that the Palestinians were only expelled so that Israel could be established as a Jewish state. Israel, on the other hand, rejected that argument and Resolution 194. It asserted that the Palestinians left voluntarily and that the Arab states were prepared for the influx of refugees. Israel's main motive in rejecting resettlement and Resolution 194 was its fear of an emerging Arab fifth column. They also remained dedicated to their dream of a Jewish state, one that wasn't majority Arab. So what we're looking at here is 700,000 stateless Palestinians with no leadership, no political voice, and no place to call home. In this episode, I want to explore what life was like for those refugees, wherever they ended up. The first place I want to talk about is Israel itself. 160,000 Palestinians remained in Israel after the war. And although they were recognized as Israeli citizens, they didn't retain the same rights as Jews living in Israel. For one thing, they lived under military rule, and what that looked like was a heavily restricted life. They couldn't leave their villages without special permission. They could be detained without trial. Arab peasants were often cut off from their fields and land in the name of security. The government could impose curfews on whole villages. Any form of political organizing, whether that be protests or forming independent parties, was quickly suppressed. And they had limited access to water and electricity. So these restrictions really seeped into every aspect of life. Now, before I move on, I just want to mention that in June of 1949, Joseph Weitz, a prominent Israeli leader and director of the Land and Afforestation Department, agreed, along with his colleagues, that the best way to deal with abandoned Palestinian villages was, quote, destruction, renovation, and settlement by Jews. Scholars argue that this plan was carried out to the letter. This made it extremely difficult, if not impossible, to resettle any Palestinian refugees. Many of those refugees, 300,000 of them, had fled to Jordan. It's important to remember that Jordan was sort of a secondary victor in the War of 1948. They ended up annexing the ancient biblical regions of Judea and Samaria, which they renamed the West Bank. When it came to Jerusalem, Jordan took control of the eastern half, which was separated from its Israeli counterpart by barbed wire, concrete walls, and reinforced posts. Jordan was, however, the sole country to grant citizenship to refugees. Palestinians were also allowed to buy land in both the east and west banks. But these freedoms were granted for a specific purpose— to encourage the assimilation of refugees and discourage the emergence of a separate Palestinian identity. Refugees couldn't organize and had no representation within the Jordanian parliament. 
only Palestinian notables were given positions, purely as a means of distancing them from their Palestinian constituents. Jordan even prohibited the use of the term Palestine. This was all sort of part of a campaign to create one cohesive Jordan, one where Palestinians had to let go of their roots and identity in the name of integration. Despite all this, life in Jordan, compared to that of Gaza, was a step up. Around 200,000 Palestinians fled to the Gaza Strip after the war. This 28-by-5-mile piece of land, occupied by Egypt, became one of the densest and most impoverished areas in the world. It was a major center for refugee camps, with around 75% of the population living in camps run by the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA. There was little land for agriculture, meager rations, no industry or commerce, and no professional class. The refugees couldn't immigrate to Egypt, they weren't granted citizenship, and they didn't have any form of representation in the government. Lebanon looked relatively similar to Gaza. It too was a center for refugee camps, especially around major cities like Beirut. The refugees lived without citizenship, much opportunity, or integration. Within UNRWA camps, we begin to see this growing attachment to and desperate preservation of Palestinian identity. This was fostered both by parents within the camps and by the structure of camp society itself. Parents would name their children after cities and villages like Haifa and Jaffa. They would remind their children of where they came from. The camps themselves were designed like villages, and people would divide up based on Palestinian places of origin. All this worked to cultivate a real Palestinian consciousness that you don't see as much in Jordan. On the opposing side, however, the UNRWA schools instilled a sense of resignation to the circumstances, to this new home, and to this new life. They did that partially just by making life relatively tolerable and by being a source of social mobility and hope. Graduates from UNRWA schools often became teachers, worked as civil servants, or went on to higher education. Because of this, refugee camps didn't foster much political organizing or activism in the first two decades after the War of 1948. Now, before I close out this episode, I think we should talk a little bit about Israel itself during this post-war period. Democratic practices and institutions were set up swiftly. David Ben-Gurion became prime minister, and the Knesset, or the parliament, was established. Economic growth in the first decade after the war was remarkable. It was partially fueled by donations, reparations from West Germany, and military aid from the United States and France. In terms of demographics, things were shifting rapidly. In 1949, Palestinians in Israel made up about 20% of the population. But in July of 1950, the Law of Return was passed, which guaranteed Israeli citizenship for Jews around the world. By 1951, the population in Israel doubled to over 1.3 million. We have to recognize, however, some of the disadvantages that Israel was facing as this new nation in the Middle East. For one thing, they were surrounded by hostile neighbors, neighbors who didn't recognize Israel as a legitimate country, boycotted it economically, and retained power over it via waterways like the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. Another difficulty for Israel was something called infiltration. This is a messy, controversial subject, but I'll just give you the facts. Palestinian refugees living in Arab states would often cross ceasefire lines to retrieve their property or see relatives or look after their land. About 90% of these infiltrations were peaceful and motivated by the factors I just stated. There were, however, a portion of infiltrations, about 10%, that became violent towards Israelis. 
As a result, Israel adopted a kind of shoot-first, ask-questions-later policy. Between 1948 and 1956, around 300 Israelis were killed by infiltrators. In that same eight-year period, anywhere from 3,000 to 5,000 infiltrators were killed by Israelis. So, as Israel is establishing itself as a real, independent nation, we can see this conflict develop into one between Israel and its Arab neighbors, rather than solely between Israelis and Palestinians. More parties are involved, as well as complicated interests and relationships. We'll see that dynamic play out in the next episode when we discuss the Suez Crisis and its repercussions. This has been the Arab-Israeli Conflict Explained. See you next time.